with 25% off all new and up to 70% off previously leased furnishings, do you really need a better reason to party? We don't think so. Come visit our new Court Furniture Clearance Center with more than 9,000 square feet of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home and office. Sofas from $199.99, bedroom sets from $399.99, dining sets from $299.99, and more. Free food, prizes, and fun all weekend long at our Candley Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway. Or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Blog Talk Radio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. And... It was a terrible idea for us to change the name of the show given Friday night's game, which leads me to Dan Lyons. Hello. Uh, yes, yes. Because if anything was proven this weekend, it is that Syracuse sports do, in fact, make us drink. Always. Oh, God. I mean, <laughs> I was following on Twitter in a bar in Vancouver, and... And the speed at which I was finishing drinks was <laughs> was going up at an alarming rate by by the end of the second half. Have you not actually seen the game, like the actual footage? I've seen I've seen the highlights. Admittedly, though, I have my my, uh, my play calling article is going to go up well, tomorrow, and when people are listening to this today, uh, will be my first like, full game um, witnessing of, of the atrocities that happened on Friday. Have fun with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm, not, uh, I'm not looking forward to that. The first time around, I mean, not only was it the, the, the brutal fact that, that I heard how bad things were going, um, I had to wait to kind of get confirmation on Twitter as to what happened, and then the... Uh, and the glaring looks from my wife for, for upwards of an hour <laughs> while I'm just literally not talking to anyone at a crowded bar, just staring at a phone. It's not how she pictures vacation. Yeah, I watched the game completely by myself. I was in a room. I was in South Carolina, and all I could think was, I'm going to go out to the bars with my friends after this game, and we're going to lose to Villanova. And it is going to be the most miserable experience because I kind of, like, prodded them a little bit after the South Carolina uh, Texas A&M game because they always give me crap about my football team not being that great. And if we lose to Villanova, oh, yeah, it would have been the worst. And we almost lost to Villanova, and they didn't have nearly as much fun with that because they were still just lost by 30. So uh, I survived embarrassment um, where I was. Uh, we still got a little bit of it on the internet, but not as bad as it would have been. And uh, thank God for this bye week that none of us wanted. Yeah, um, I honestly don't. I, I don't really know what we'd see if this team didn't have a bye week, I mean, whether it was Central Michigan or Lake Forest or Pitt or anybody. I, I, I would bet on us losing by a very significant margin this weekend if, if we played um, – it, it's insane how quickly you know the, uh, the the entire tenor of uh, of this this fan base can change so so quickly um, into you know one of just brooding and sky is falling and and you know what like I, I know it's just one game but 
I can't blame anybody because I'm doing it myself. Like, this team doesn't have its head on straight right now based on what we saw in game one. And, and if play calling is any indication of what we're going to see for the rest of the season, um, I, this is going to be a very, very rough fall. Yeah, I, I'm chi- I'm kind of like now that we're, we're a couple days removed from it, I'm taking the wait-and-see approach very strictly through, uh, to the CMU game in a couple weeks. Um, the play calling wasn't good, as you'll come to find. I think and I hope that a lot of that was – it was the first game. We were trying to, to get our feet wet, um, even though, you know, we have an experienced offense. Still the first game that we've played in the year. Um, and Hunt went out, and we just didn't touch the ball that much early in the game because Villanova – we just couldn't get Villanova off the field defensively. So I don't know what drive the Hunt punch was. It was only the third or fourth, I think. I'll, I'm going to look it up, actually, while I'm talking. But it, it really wasn't – we didn't have a ton of time to really see what the offense could do with Hunt. And right when we were starting to, to move the ball, and Hunt actually completed a couple of nice passes downfield a bit, and uh, Dully broke that big run, which is the other thing. Like, even the successful drive that Syracuse had with Hunt in there, it was like a, a short drive because Dully broke a 65-yard touchdown. So I'm I'm choosing to believe that it was just kind of Syracuse staff easing the offense into things, and then when Hunt went out, we had to revert to, you know, playing ultra conservative ball with Austin Wilson. Um, but I'm not totally comfortable with that theory, considering I watched the 2013 team. So we'll see. Uh, I'm I'm not going to jump off the off a bridge or anything this week. We, we do have a, a while until we play another game. Our quarterback's not going to be out for it. Um, Central Michigan's not very good. They almost lost to Chattanooga. They were down 16 nothing at a point. So I think a lot of this can go away if Syracuse just comes out and stomps Central Michigan. But if it's another struggle or, God forbid, a loss, then things are really, really ugly. And I don't know how I'll feel about it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the beauty of, of college football in many ways because it's such a short season. Um, you know, one game, win or lose, can really kind of shape the narrative. And for us, right now, I think one game shaped the narrative of this is disaster, and that would have been win or lose um, against Villanova. Um, well, win the way we did or lose. Um, that's the narrative. But I think, um, obviously, Central Michigan, if we win that game, we're still 2-0 lose that game, and, and you're probably staring down a barrel of five straight losses after that. Um, and, and then that's a tough pill to swallow uh, for us as a fan base. Uh, I think what, what frustrates me about the play calling, and in gen- you mentioned you know how the team was kind of waiting into the game, and we, we did that a lot last year, and I think it, it's become kind of a persistent issue because what teams will do is knowing that we're going to wade into the game with play calling and not really take too many shots is they're going to take their shots and they're going to get very aggressive. And suddenly, you know, whatever game we were trying to call, um, after the first couple of drives, we don't have the ability to do so because we've, we've kind of, you know, slept through the first quarter and just like feeling out the defense. I know like the more aggressive, um, you know, NFL play callers and to say that, you know, McDonald has to be an NFL play caller by any means, but, you know, some of them will call, will, will give defenses 15 different looks in their first 15 plays, um, and then, and then have coordinators chart how the, how the defense 
uh, response. And to me, like, no, we don't have to do that necessarily, but it would be great to do something similar, even if on a smaller scale. It just seems like, you know, and I'm sure I'll see when I, when I get through the game, um, that this team comes out in very similar sets, in very similar formations, very similar personnel, every single, every single play. And it becomes very easy for, for defense, especially skilled ones, to sniff it out. Yeah, I have to just look. It was, we ran, I think, give or take one play, 26 plays before the hunt punch. So it ended up only it ended up being about half of our plays. Um, I think we ran 58 or so. I can't remember exactly. It was in the 50s. Yeah. Um, but it ended up only being about a third or so of what our, our aim is, which obviously when Austin Wilson comes in, the, the up-tempo thing slows down a bit because you want to be safe. And I, I don't totally disagree with how they handled that except that, I don't know, it just was ugly. Um, but, yeah, I just I hope that in CMU we come out firing um, compared to what we saw in the most of the drives. Obviously, the first drive we stalled out, uh, but then the, punt, the punting, uh, I think we had a running into the ticker penalty, and we got back, and then after that there was an incomplete pass and then a 20-yard pass to, to Broiled and then the 65-yard gully run. That was definitely the first drive, which I had forgotten. So things actually, it was, you know, were up and down both that first drive. But then after that, it was just um, there was an, a Brizzly fumble, which lost us eight yards, which hurt in the second drive. Just we, It just didn't look in sync, um, which is a little bit concerning, but not totally crazy for uh, a first team, a first game of the season. And Syracuse ended up scoring in, in two of the uh, full drive, two of Hunt's three drives. So, I think uh, some people said, and I kind of agree, that if Hunt hadn't gone out, we probably would have won a little more comfortably. Things didn't look good, but I think it would have been at least a multiple-store win. And instead, we got what we got. So, uh, at least it was exciting, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess that's the plus. So, at the same time, you know, this is – we've had some exciting games in recent years to open the year, and this is the first time um, we've really kind of come out on top. Um if, if this had been a Penn State or a Northwestern, per se, Dan, do you think that that this result would have, I mean, whether Hunt played or not, um, do you think we pretty much would have been run off the field? Uh, Penn State probably. Northwestern looked awful, so who knows. But, um, yeah. like, Northwestern apparently didn't even have, like, the right plays in their defensive bra- uh, wristbands, which is just hilarious. Um but, I mean, a, a better team than Villanova, and not to say Villanova isn't a good football team, They, for the level they play at, they looked excellent, and the quarterback, I, I don't know, uh, he definitely could have played a, lot, a couple FBS teams, if not a, a decent amount. But um, just using the conventional logic that any BCS program, good or bad, is better than any FCS program, um, I don't think we would have done well. We know that's not entirely true. Look at North Dakota State. No, yeah, obviously. And if we ever settle them, I'm going to freak out. Um, we should never play that team. We we would lose so hard. Like it would it, it would honestly because they wouldn't be intimidated by the dome because they also play indoors. Like there's there's too much that would be stacked against us, no matter how good we perceive us Syracuse to be. We we would very likely lose by at least two touchdowns, if not more. 
even playing Villanova is not really a – I mean, they're a good team, too. Uh, playing any of these top ten FCS teams, obviously there are only so many FCSs available that want to play uh, an FBS team. Um, right. But playing at Villanova or an NDSU or one of these other teams is really a no-win proposition because but if Syracuse had won by 50, what crown of credit – I mean, people are excited about what Pitt did, but no one's putting Pitt in the top 25. I, mean, I think they got one vote, but still, like they did exactly what they had to do against Delaware, who's historically a pretty good FCS. And, I mean, people aren't turning on uh, calling Pitt a, an ACC contender, so – I don't know. If you're going to play an FCS, can we just, like, call up Georgetown and have them play us every year? Because that would be great. They're terrible. Yeah, I, I would love to have a terrible – but you know what? At the same time, remember the, the Rhode Island game a few years back? That that was a game against an absolutely terrible FCS team that almost went almost went very south, um, while at the same time you look at a, a Wagner game that, that, you know, once Hunt entered the game was never really in doubt. Yeah, it's actually it's weird. I th- Sean brought it up. I think it was in the comments in one of the posts, or someone brought it up, and he agreed. Um, it's just really weird how, aside from last year, through multiple coaches from I mean, I, my first year at Syracuse was 2008, which was a very close uh, a very close win to, against Northeastern, who no longer has a program. Uh, but through three coaches, we've had a lot more more near misses against FCS teams than straight up blowouts which is scary and weird because three of those teams have gone to bowls and won eight, seven or eight games. Like Those aren't the teams that you expect to lose to FCSs. It happens, but it's just consistently a scary game. Um, the only ones that were just abject blowouts were Colgate, which was, I think, 42-7 to a couple of years ago, but that was still closer than it seemed. Uh, Nassib kind of took the game over at the end. And then the Wagner game, which Hunt just went off. But aside from those two, like every other game's at least been a, a little bit scary if not really scary, like the main game when they were using all the trickeration and, and then this past weekend. Yeah, it's, it is certainly puzzling. And, I mean, granted, we're one of the few programs that hasn't lost to an FCS program. But, I mean, it does feel like we're due. I hope, I hope I'm wrong. But it does feel like, you know, every year that we play a team – I mean, the Stony Brook game was rough. This game was rough. Rhode Island was rough. Maine was rough. Like, there, there are far more really, really tight wins um, than there need to be. At the same time, you'll see us within a couple weeks of those games, you know, pull off a really kind of uh, kind of definitive win against, you know, a real a real solid FBS team. Um, I'm not a big fan of. I'm not a big fan of it. I understand why we schedule FBS teams. Um, I'm not a big fan of it, though. If we're not going to be able to get up to these games and and play play it at, at the level that we need to in order to you know win that game convincingly, inspire um, a lot of faith. Because honestly, like if, if you're inviting if you're inviting freshmen to come for free, and you're inviting you know the community to to show up for the first game and say, hey, like we want you to get excited about like this lesser opponent that we're gonna you know beat to death on the turf, and then for you to struggle to beat them in double overtime, it's, just, it's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah, I, I don't think we should stop scheduling these games because eventually I, I just feel like we have to click and we just have to go on a couple of years where 
FCS games is, are not an issue. It just has to happen because it doesn't make any sense that every year we get stared like this. Um, and they're, they're, they're quote-unquote free wins, and Syracuse is not yet in a position where we pass on those. But it's just, I don't know, it's it's frustrating. And um, hopefully the other thing that comes with this is the team kind of just a little fire lit under it, and Schaefer can yell a bunch of, during the two next two weeks. And then Central Michigan is no longer some stupid Mac team, and now they're a lot better than Villanova and should be taken seriously. So, it, again, if, if the team comes out and, and lays it to Central Michigan and beats them by three touchdowns, I think a lot of this nervousness will go away. Whether or not that's justified is to be seen. Aaron. I think it's worth diverting a little bit from Syracuse right now. Um, ACC overall, um, a lot of the talk was how Florida State didn't look didn't look apart from last year. And honestly, like I understand the criticism there, but at the same time, um, I, I do think that you know what, Oklahoma State might just be the best team on, on FSU's schedule. So I think to, to pull out a win by six, on, in what, while a neutral environment is basically a road game, um, you know, in Dallas against Oklahoma State. I, I think overall, like, I think they did what they were supposed to. I think it's very obvious that, that you know, the pieces around Winston are going to need some time to come together. And, and this is this is atypical for Florida State to schedule a tough game like this early. So I think, you know, it, it was a wake-up call for a lot of those guys. And at the end of the day, a win's a win, and I think a win over, you know, a fringe top 25 team, and, and who knows where OK State ends up, is, is a great, great thing to have on your resume. Uh, but I'm, I'm not willing to jump ship on FSU just yet. I think the Nulls are going to be fine. No, absolutely. I, I think it was weird that FSU's biggest issue was that the offensive line that everyone heard so much about this offseason because it returned everybody, or almost everybody, um, except for their center, I think they had four returning starters, just did not have a good game against Oklahoma State, which is not exactly a, a team that puts out great defensive linemen on a yearly basis. So it was really strange to see them struggle like that. Um, and then Jameis didn't throw the ball as well as he, he does all the time, except to Rashid Green, who just went nuts. Um, but he did have one of the best quarterback scrambles you'll ever see. Um, oh, God. Just, I don't know how he made that cut right <laughs> after jumping over the lineman. Like, it was just ridiculous. Um, and then the dives at the end zone. Everything about it was great. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, they played a solid opponent. I don't know what Oklahoma State's going to be, but they sure look good. It kinda, it's funny because number one and two, Florida State and Alabama, played more or less the same game where, I mean, Alabama, Florida, West Virginia had far, I think, lower expectations than Oklahoma State. Um, I remember a couple months ago, Oliver Lark basically said, like, hey, we might not have a winning season again this year. So I don't think Mountaineers fans were really going into that Alabama game thinking they're going to come close to playing an upset, and they really did. They moved the ball like crazy against the, the, the Tide. So both those teams played opponents that were a bit underwhelming, even if they're fairly decent brands. And I, I don't know if it's Oklahoma State and West Virginia being better than what they were billed to be, or those two teams just being rusty or I mean, Alabama has different issues than Oklahoma than uh, Florida State, but uh, kind of a weird weekend for those teams. And but again, it's way too early to be worried about the Seminoles. I mean, they have so much talent, as we've talked about all the time. You know, bad first games happen, and if your bad first game is a touchdown win over a pretty decent Oklahoma State squad, then that's not the worst thing in the world. And you brought up two teams there that I think brings up a larger point. Um, 
do you think these neutral site games, while, you know, they, they're great showcases for a lot of top teams early on and they're great for, you know, strength of schedule and resume building, do you think that the team's a little off to start the year? I know whether whether you're a vet or, or you know, this is your first time out there for your school, it's got to be at least a little different to have to, you know, travel for your first game to, you know, what essentially is, you know, a, a in many cases, a pro environment. Um, you're seeing either a 50-50 crowd, or in many of these cases, you are seeing kind of a partisan crowd towards one or the other. And it it, it looked like it to me that, that Alabama and Florida State in particular, I mean, there were a bunch of different uh, you know, neutral site games, just really couldn't, really couldn't muster up the, uh, I, I guess, the focus in, in those, those big, big moments. It's not to say they can't later in the year. But it's to say that maybe, you know, teams need, um, you know, especially top teams might need that early home game to kind of to kind of ease into things and see something familiar before they head out on the road. Yeah, I don't know. If I was just thinking about it as someone who's never been with a college football team on a trip like that, even a neutral site game where you're going to have the majority of the fans like Alabama at the Georgia Dome, all the preparation still has to be a lot more like a road game than anything. You're traveling, you're in the hotel, um, you're going to a place that you're not familiar playing or, or don't play often. Um, so, and even and then the fans just won't be as loud in a neutral site. There will be less of them. Um, it's a whole different environment. So, I almost feel like for both teams, it feels probably more like a road game than a home game, um, even if it's you know a place that's only an hour away or a couple hours away. So. I don't think it's uh, totally unreasonable to think that some of these teams are are thrown a bit by the experience, especially right off the bat when they haven't played any games yet. Right. I guess even going further nationally now, um, you got the pleasure of seeing um, one of the most, I think, thorough dismantlings I've seen um, between two like top squads. Uh, probably since the 2013 National Championship game when Alabama just completely ran through uh, Notre Dame. Uh, what's your kind of – you can share whatever details you want about that. Like, what was so surgical, so impressive about what A&M did with Kenny Hill and how is it different from what they did with Johnny Manziel in their center? It's funny because everyone's going to make the comparison between Hill and, and Manziel, and the comparison could not be less apt because Manziel was just this dynamo who had all these ridiculous skills that weren't necessarily what can be coached or, or game planned for from either side. Hill was just dropping back into the pocket, getting unbelievable protection, and then just piece by piece dismantling the South Carolina defense. Like there was no, there was not a lot of improvisation like Manziel. There wasn't a lot of scrambling. It was just a quarterback reading the defense and finding a guy eight yards downfield. And then the, the most shocking part is that A&M's players looked like on a completely – like they were playing in the, uh, a completely different conference than, than South Carolina. And if you've watched South Carolina at all in the last couple of years, they're a pretty good team with a lot of good athletes. And their defensive backs and their linebackers had no chance against the A&M receivers, who are all, for the most part, freshmen and sophomores, which is terrifying because Hill's a sophomore – their best receivers are all underclassmen. Their three running backs who all played well are all juniors. Uh, that's a terrifying bunch. Now, the defense for Texas A&M 
people won't talk about it, but look pretty bad. <laughs> and South Carolina, without without their running back healthy, Mike Davis played awful, and then it came out that he was hurt. Um, he he wasn't a big factor, and then they had to throw the ball just because they had been giving up so many touchdowns every time A&M touched the ball. I think they only punted once. Um, that Dylan Thompson was forced to throw the ball down the field, and he did that with more or less impunity and scored four touchdowns, two or three of which were really deep uh, passes, and another one was broken up at the goal line by the state, by the A&M safety, so it really could have been five Hail Mary touchdowns. So I'm still, I'd still be a little concerned if I was A&M because their defense didn't look – they looked better than they, than they did last year. They, run, they stuffed the run pretty well but the backfield still looked like a mess. But it might not matter if they're going to drop 50 points every week because South Carolina was thought to have a pretty good defense, and they have issues clearly, but I don't know if they have so many issues that A&M, A&M's talent wasn't the major factor there. So it, it was weird because I, I have a bunch of friends down in South Carolina, which is part of the reason I went down there. Uh, I also want to do some stories on the game, which I did. Um, and going to the tailgate beforehand and, and everything – there was some nervousness for South Carolina, more because of the expectations for the season and how they were SEC East favorites and how, you know, they were a, a kind of a sexy underdog pick to make the playoff a bit. And But no one was really concerned about A&M at all. Like, no one really even entertained the notion of losing A&M that night. They hadn't lost eight, 18 straight home games. And then two minutes into the game, it was out. Like, they, they fought back a little bit in the first half, but by the half, by half time, it was 31-14 to 14 and people were leaving, which was – shocking so it was a really strange game to go to um and uh, it, it really turned the sec on its head because a&m did not have high expectations this year south carolina had all of them and it was completely flipped by halftime you know with a&m though i think the interesting thing now is the sec is still not an honestly minded uh, conference by any means and especially in the west um, I mean, th- their main contenders for for that division title, uh, I'd say only Auburn can really put up points in bunches. Um, Alabama is still going to figure out their quarterback situation. I mean, LSU, if not for a spirited comeback, would have been um, pretty well embarrassed um, by Wisconsin. I-, I think you look at the rest of the SEC, West has questionable focus um, on offense. Overall, um, if A&M can play better defense than last year and play at that same sort of level of of, uh, of off- offensive efficiency, and granted, I understand that um, you know not every team has has a bunch of freshman corners um, out there, but at the same time, like this A&M team could could because they're using um, they're using I, I guess a much more deliberate approach instead of the chaos agent that is um, Johnny Manziel uh, could end up surpassing the, the, the ceiling that, that it appeared he set for them in the, in the SEC. I almost feel like it was the A&M offense is like the, the Kaiser Soze of the SEC now. Like the greatest trick they ever played was that Johnny Manziel made their offense unsustainable, but the Kenny Hill offense was just as good, and there was no, nothing they did looked like something they couldn't just go and repeat every week. Where Manziel, you had no idea it was going to happen, even though it was generally a pretty good, you know, you, you knew he was going to beat, you just didn't know how. So 
it's uh, I don't even know. A and M is a, a terrifying team. A because they just look dis- they they didn't even look like they were doing anything special, which is the scariest part. They they were just out there playing football and they just dropped points. And who knows what's going to happen when they go and look like they're playing like at a net, uh, at a next deer. Plus the fact that they're all young and they're all going to get better. So if you told me A and M was going to win a national championship, if not maybe not this year, but in the next two years. I'd probably believe you because that offense is absolutely terrifying and it's going to be around for a while. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear Mike someone, I don't know why you'd really go anywhere but the pros. Even if that is a pretty steep buyout uh, right now. I, I think. Oh, there's no reason. He, there's no reason for him to leave there unless he wants to go to the NFL. I mean, they have. They brought him, what, $400 million the year after. Manziel and the Heisman, just that one 12-month period. They have right. the facilities there are just absurd. Like, the, the practice facility they just built with, like, a spaceship. Um, I don't know. It, I, I would struggle to even consider. I mean, it would have to be a pretty good NFL job, I think, and that's only if he really gets all he wants to do done in, in college. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if someone was there for a while. Okay. And I think, you know, it really depends, too. I think we could see a real turning point for for the SEC in particular because I think a lot of other teams have embraced, you know, spread concepts. I think you're seeing, um, you know, obviously Auburn does, A&M does, and some other teams, you know, mix and match. But I, I think if A&M manages to, to pull off the unthinkable here and win the SEC West, um, you know, you could really be looking at, um, a, a real shift. I mean, Alabama is going to hold out as long as possible, but it could be a shift um, around the rest of the country. Um, in terms of, you know, these chaos agents and how they kind of depart, um, I, I think two examples, and, and not that I'm comparing their games, and they're very different. Um, you, you look at players like Manziel, you look at players like, um, like Robert Griffin III. These are two guys now who, I mean, Baylor hit a higher ceiling after he left than when he was there. Now, part of that is because he was a building block, but part of that is because, you know, he, he kind of brought a, a, a chaos agent mentality versus, you know, a very kind of deliberate um, style of play. And I think Kenny Hill might might actually do the same with A&M. Um, you see those two guys, Manziel and Griffin, versus someone like Andrew Luck, who was incredibly deliberate, and, and brought his team to a very high level, and, and they've been able to sustain that since at Stanford. Um, so I think, you know, while it's a very small sample size, it is worth at least thinking through a little bit that, you know, while it's a lot of fun to have these guys who kind of, you know, do the unexpected, the unexpected isn't always good. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting comparison, the, the Petty Hill thing. Um, we haven't seen Hill really flashy athleticism that we see Bryce Petty do, but he didn't really need to because he was never, he was very rarely under any pressure against South Carolina. Um, but, yeah, no, that's a very valid point. Uh, and if if you're a Texas fan right now, you cannot be thrilled <laughs> because even if they don't play A&M anymore or even if, you know, Baylor's still never going to be Texas or A&M, it's still, you have to deal with them on the recruiting trail. And right now, if I want I'm an offensive still position player, and you can tell me, hey, you can go play with who knows who the quarterback is at Texas now. It was David Ash, but that's not that appealing. Or you can go play with whoever Sumlin or, or Bryles throws out there and run a million miles an hour and just put 50 points on teams. 
I, I get that the burnt orange is a really, you know, a huge legacy, but I'd also like to have fun. And those two programs seem like just a blast to play in. Oh, absolutely. So I guess uh, we're about at halftime, so might as well bring up some beer. I know uh, for both of us got to have some some off-road adventures away from our usual standards, given that we were both away from home. Absolutely, I'm actually just bringing up the list now. It was a, it was a pretty it was a pretty decent week for uh, ch- trying out new things. You want me to start it off? Hello? Yeah, you can start it off. All right. Um, well, I had a couple different things that aren't, weren't, weren't necessarily Carolina-based, but things I can't find up here and I could find down there. Um, from out your way, I had uh, Coronado Brewing's uh, Orange Avenue Wit which uh, I thought was was very good. Um, obviously, I'm a big Whippier fan, as you would you all know from listening to this. But um, definitely very light, flavorful, um, but just a really solid beer. Um, I also had Summer Solstice, which is a cream ale from Anderson Valley Brewing, also in California. Um, really interesting flavors. Like it almost had like a. It, out of all the cream, like usually the cream ales I've had, you know, I'm not a huge fan of, but this one had very distinct, like almost like caramel, malty, like sweeter notes, but nothing overpowering. Um, it's really nice, very drinkable. Um, I've had uh, Southside Weiss from Old Mecklenburg, uh, which I believe is a yeah, it's a Charlotte, it's a Charlotte brewery. Um, pretty decent uh, American pale uh, wheat ale. Um, probably not as good as the other the other uh, the other weed I had earlier in the week, but um, just overall very solid. Uh, and then I had uh, this weekend after I got back in Carolina, I was in New Jersey. I had some Anderson John, which I hadn't had in a while, which is delicious. I don't know why I don't drink that more often. Um, and I had uh, Captain Jack uh, James Jack Pilsner, which was okay. Uh, not always the hugest pills fan, um, unless they're, you know, it's something you really, I think, have to be in the mood for on, like, a hot summer day or something. This wasn't the best, but uh, not a bad effort. That was also from old Mecklenburg. So a decent uh, bunch of different things, which was nice, because I don't always get to find new beers, and this weekend was all about that. It's a fair point on Pilsners. I do feel like, overall, um, they get to be kind of hit or miss, I know a couple of good ones here and there, uh, Little Bow Pills out here uh, from Smog City, Mama's Little Yellow Pills uh, from uh, Oscar Blues. And then, uh, I mean, every listener probably has access to that. And uh, Victory's uh, Pivo Pills is another pretty good Pilsner. But, yeah, overall, I can't say I'm, I'm sprinting to, to get Pilsners when I'm out drinking. Mild Blues is very good. Sometimes I just feel like they have almost like a, for lack of a better word, because it's kind of offensive to the beer makers, but they almost have like a stunky aftertaste, which I'm not always the biggest fan of. I like when they're just very clean and crisp. Mm. I do agree. 
Hey, for me, I was up in the uh, Pacific Northwest this weekend, so to hang out in Vancouver and Seattle and got to hang out with Sean for a little bit, um, which was nice. He may be joining us later. Emphasis on May. But uh, I got to drink Dan's favorite beer, Pumpkin, over at a, over at a Belgian bar in Seattle that actually got uh, a keg, which I was surprised by because they didn't really know the Southern Tier got outside of uh, the Northeast, but apparently they do. I think they're just spreading pumpkin everywhere because I've seen so much of it on Twitter. I still haven't had it yet, but I've just seen <laughs> everyone in the world drinking it. Yeah, I think, like, I wanted one, and and if it's still, like, if I can find it around um, come October, then maybe I'll be, like, a little bit more into it. it was, but I had it, it was, like, a cold, rainy day up in Seattle, so it was, like, okay, like, this makes sense, but, yeah, I, I out here, at least, it's not something I would, you, would, you would be dying to drink all the time, just from the pure oddness of, of pumpkin-flavored anything, and... In 75-degree weather. No, it's a very, like, like, right now I would drink it just to have it for the first time, but, like, once it hits October or up in Syracuse, when it hit, like, second week of September, when it starts to get into the 60s and 50s, that's when you really, you know, want that, that extra spice. Up at, like, when it's 80, just, you know, doesn't doesn't necessarily do it for me. Oh, absolutely. Um, so a few others that I had, and just kind of taking a sampling of what I had, so people feel free to check out the rest of them untapped. Um, Driftwood Brewery's Fat Tug IPA, a uh, great local beer from Vancouver um, that I would highly recommend. Uh, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but uh, Gigantic IPA from Portland. Uh, they happen to have a bottle at the local liquor store, so make sure to grab one of those. Uh, I had IPA Filthy Dirty from Parallel 49 Brewing up in Vancouver. Uh, very good one. Uh, Driftwood also makes a, a great ghost called Dota. Definitely recommended as well as um, Phillips Brewing, another Vancouver one. Uh, their Electric Unicorn White IPA. I'm not usually a big white IPA guy, but uh, you know this one really just seemed to hit the right notes. Um, I was a big fan, and like I said, plenty more where that came from if you're looking for recommendations on things up in that area, because there was a lot. Yeah, I'm, I am a bit white IPA fan, so I'll see if I can find that anywhere. I don't know. I don't know what type of distribution the, uh, the Vancouver beers get. I feel, like, I feel like Vancouver, Portland, and Seattle do a lot of... Um, like intermingling with each other beer-wise. Um, but they don't do a ton of, like, leaving their area. Like, there's so many beers in each of those cities that don't leave those cities. Yeah, if only for the name, I want to find it. <laughs> because it's pretty great. <laughs> no, it, it, for me, it was, a, it was a pretty good find. Um, there was this great bar um, up there. And if anyone goes to Vancouver, I highly recommend it. Um, over in the Gastown District called the Alibi Room, and it's like a really, really great uh, gastro pub that had really fresh ingredients, great food, reasonably priced, um, and then did, you know, flights 
they're about 11 bucks a piece uh, for four, for four. But at the same time, like, I mean, this place had, uh, without a doubt, from anyone I talked to, the best tap list in the entire city. So uh, definitely recommend it. Also, odd side note, while we're talking about Vancouver in general, Vancouver gets distribution from Brooklyn Brewery, while California doesn't, nor does Seattle or Portland. Makes no sense. I'm sure you can't get Brooklyn out there. It's pretty widespread. Yeah, I mean, they're pretty. I mean, they are pretty much everywhere. Like uh, the three West Coast states are really the only ones I haven't seen it in. I know I've seen it in uh, in Vegas, seen it in Texas. So yeah, I feel like uh, I feel like this is just like there's just three states they're just not going to bother with. I mean, granted. Oregon, Washington, and California produce a hell of a lot of beer um, themselves, so it might just kind of, you know, make white noise on the market. But at the same time, there's plenty of East Coast transplants that would probably drink it pretty happily. Yeah, I'm not the hugest Brooklyn fan, but I've had some things from there that I enjoy. I do want to check out the uh, the actual brewery, though, since I've been, you know, I live fairly close, and I've heard it's a lot of fun. As brewery tours yeah. tend to be. Yeah, I'd recommend heading there. And then, have you been a tourist right over by there? I have not. I haven't. The, the couple times I've been to Brooklyn re, uh, recently, I haven't had a lot of time to, like, stop and do things. I've just been going to events. So I do need to make some time for that. Yeah, I'd say uh, the next time you're there, there's, like, a I mean, there's a ton of, like, different tours you could do, and this is, this is kind of an FYI for everyone. Um, you know, taking Brooklyn uh, beer knowledge from a Californian. Um, <laughs> uh, you can go to Brooklyn Brewery, um, Tourist, Keg and Lantern, um, and Barcade are all within, like, a mile of one another. Um, all really walkable, all great spots. Um, so, yeah, would highly recommend that. Yeah, I'm gonna have to go do a, a full Brooklyn uh, Brooklyn trip down there because I've heard there's great bars. I've wanted to hit up tours for a while now. Yeah, if you're if you're a big fan of Evil Twin beers, you'll uh, you'll, you'll be quite pleased. The beer talk actually went on longer than normal, which is surprising, but um, necessary to talk a little bit more about Syracuse football. Um, we talked about all the things that didn't go right. Is there anything that did go right for you, Dan? And is there any player that, you know, either someone that we expected to do well or someone that maybe came out of nowhere that that you see is kind of a key to more success going forward? Um, there were a couple bright spots. Uh, I actually wrote kind of similar things in, in our roundtable that's going up. I'm guessing tomorrow. Um I thought that individually we had a couple of defensive players that, that looked good. Um, I don't have the defensive stats in front of me, although I should have should get them up. Um, I thought Cam Lynch looked great. I think he had like a dozen tackles or something crazy and, you know, seemed to really be on his way to a big year, which I think we're all hoping for him. Um, and then I thought the two starting defensive ends, Michael Robinson and Rob Welch had good moments. I thought Eric Kroon was all over the place, which was good. Um, he did get banged up a couple times. Uh, I'm not sure if they were cramps or what, but he looked good when he was in there. Um, off, But as a whole, just the, 
for whatever reason, we just don't know what we're doing against scrambling quarterbacks, which doesn't make much sense considering we have one. Um, on offense, uh, I thought Hunt looked better throwing the ball downfield than he did throwing the streams, which makes little sense, but he seemed to be throwing a tighter ball. He had a, a couple nice deeper passes. I, he hit Royal for 20 yards. Um, he hit West a couple times. West, West and Royal both had five catches each, uh, and West definitely looked to be a little more involved than he had been last year, which is good. Um, so that was good. It was nice seeing Adrian Fleming out there. He only had one catch, but it was for 12 yards, so it was solid. Ben Lewis had a lot of time. Um, overall, the receiving hard to judge just because we ended up having to switch quarterbacks. Um, and then Austin Wilson, honestly, I don't think looked that bad. Uh, he, he was 11 for 17, which is one completion better than what Hunt was with the same amount of attempts. A few yards only 89 yards, but considering we were calling very conservative plays for him, that's to be expected. Um, but overall, he didn't make any – there was no point that I, you know, freak out because of a throw he made. Um, he didn't turn the ball over. He generally, I thought, played safe football, which is probably all that was asked of him. Um, so it could have been a lot worse. And uh, I think that if Austin, you know, clearly the playbook had to really be hedged down when he went in because there was – we, we tried a couple of different zone reads with him. didn't really work. He's not that type of player. He he is supposed to be pretty quick, but he's not a runner. Um, but if he's our quarterback of the future, I think there are worse things in the world. He, he has a, a really live arm, and he, he wasn't afraid to make the throws when he actually when he needed to. He actually threw one to the end zone, I think, in one of the overtimes, and it was on a pass interference play, and it was one of those throws where it just zipped right by the corner and the only guy who had a chance at it was the receiver. I forget who it was. Uh, and if not for the pass interference, it would have been probably a beautiful touchdown throw uh, in pretty tight coverage. So um, I actually was higher on Austin than some other people. But to judge him on a game where he didn't know he was going to have to play um, and it was his first deep play time at all, not, not the worst performance in the world. And, and I thought that we would be okay if Hunt had to miss time last uh, next, next game because I thought with a couple weeks of, of – practice, Wilson would be okay going forward. But luckily, we don't have to worry about that now. True. I think that, that's, to me, the most important thing that we uh, we got out of this game, I guess, is the fact that we don't have to, uh, have to worry about losing Hunt um, or anything like that. Um, you brought up an interesting point there, and I think it's one that we, we do talk about a fair amount, is that why... Why does this team continue to struggle against against mobile quarterbacks? I mean, you would think with with skilled linebackers, which we've had a, a good amount of in, in recent years, um, that you'd be able to shut down, uh, you know, mobile quarterbacks. But yet, it just seems over and over again, uh, you know, we just don't look great um, against them. And I guess for me, it, it's become. It's become a bit maddening. It's become a bit frustrating. I mean, there's plenty of times where we've we've broken that mold, and there's plenty of times where we've we've adjusted things and, and made the right calls. But I guess I I don't understand how how we've become just so bad at to mobile quarterbacks, regardless of team in, in recent years. The Robertson thing was frustrating. Not so much that he just dashed us, which he did on a couple plays, but it just seemed like we couldn't get him. Third down was just a disaster. We just couldn't stop him on third down, whether it was 
Um, him avoiding, he just slipped by people. He he broke tackles. He only averaged 3.4 yards a carry, and he carried it 34 times. So it wasn't like he was just doing these, making these ridiculous plays. But we just had never we we sacked him I think five times, and I feel like SU could have sacked him 12 times if they just could bring him down. He just would not go down. He always kept plays alive. I I wish I knew how many times on like a third and and eight or nine, he slipped through two guys' grass and then hit a receiver downfield who obviously was open because our defensive backs were just a mess. Um, it was just frustrating because it wasn't like he was this – he was obviously a good player, but it wasn't like he was this, like, Nets-level, like, Cam Newton or Jameis Winston-type type guy. Uh, Winston's not a good comparison because he doesn't run that much. But it um, it was just frustrating because he – just for whatever reason, was so good at keeping things alive. And in a different world, it seemed like SU could have just run him out of the stadium, but he just refused to have that happen. So, I don't know. It was a little different than some of the other mobile quarterback struggles we've had, but it's just, I don't know, it was just a really tough game to watch because Syracuse just couldn't find an answer when they absolutely needed it, even if they did well on first and second down. Uh, I, I completely agree. I, I think now, I think now going forward, the problem is, you know, how to address how to address the issues on defense. Understanding that we're going to face, you know, another mobile quarterback or two, while not overemphasizing. Um, you know, obviously, like I said, I'm going to be watching uh, the game later on tonight. Um, how do you feel about this secondary? I know from early returns that I've seen doesn't appear that um, secondary has made a ton of progress from last year, but um, do you feel that that's true? Do you feel that, that there's a lot of room for improvement, or, or are we once again going to be kind of banking on them getting hidden by what should be a strong front seven, or at least we hope is? Um, it was, As I said, it wasn't a good performance. I think some of it might have been hurt by the fact that Robertson was running around and improvising so much. It's a lot harder to stay on your guy when the quarterback is buying himself a lot of extra time. So maybe that kind of made things look worse than it was. But at the same time, I mean, there were just way too many open receivers. Um, It didn't look much unlike what we've seen in the last couple years when the secondary struggled. So I'm not all that – I'm not that uh, optimistic, unfortunately. But – if Central, if we can, you know, keep Central Michigan in, in in the pocket, and their quarterback is not running the ball 34 times, maybe the secondary will look better when they're playing a more conventional style. Um, I don't know. I, I'm I'm not looking forward too much to the secondary for the rest of the year. Again, I still think their player, the individual players, should be better than what they've turned out to be as a group. But Again, I'm, I'm very willing to take a look-and-see approach with all things Syracuse football going forward this year, at least for two more weeks. On that note, uh, sorry for leaving you hanging there, Sean. Well, you guys are talking about such a fun topic. I just wanted to let you roll. Oh. And by fun, well, of course, happy to be doing it. <laughs> I, I hope you just by the time up I there and not talk about the game. That would be so mean. 
I, I was really hoping you guys would have, after like the half hour mark, would have been like, all right, I can't talk about this anymore. But I understand. Oh, we stopped talking about it for a good like 40 minutes in the middle of that. Yeah, we're like, let's talk about uh, Alabama, sir. And then beer. <laughs> I don't blame you. How you so been, What's your take on this, well, first, this awful, awful uh, game? Well, first, I should let uh, let folks know that uh, John, you and I had a had a good IRL meeting this weekend in Seattle, and uh, of course you were you were wearing the obligatory Syracuse sweatshirt, and I I didn't, so uh, you a point <laughs> to you on that one. Hashtag so uh, yeah, yeah, real disloyal. Um, but as far as the game, I mean, uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. I wrote that recap right after the game was over. And, um, uh, since then I, I I have since heard from uh, a few people that I was a little overly harsh and, uh, and that perhaps some of the players on the team read it and thought it was also a little harsh. Um, and, and, you know, fair enough, but at the same time, um, I think that's. I think the reaction was the one that most fans of Syracuse were having, and it's that frustrated thing that we have of, you know, we hear all off season about how things are going to be a little bit better than they were last year, and things look good, and this team's more experienced, and all that stuff. And it's not to say that this team won't get better as the season goes on, but it's just frustrating when we see them come out against a, an inferior opponent like this and. I mean, they should have lost the game. They, there's no no getting around it. If Villanova's kicker makes that chip shot, we lose. So, um, you know, we won the game, thankfully, and uh, and we can move on from there. And we may end up having a good season after all, but I, I think it's fair as a, as a fan to look at that game and be frustrated and disappointed, especially in the, in the heat of it. I have yeah, to I say... Think that... Sorry, go ahead, John. Absolutely. I, if you're listening, Syracuse football players, we all love you and want you to do well. But when a Villanova player misses a straight-on 25-yard field goal, <laughs> and that is the only thing that kept Syracuse in the game at the time, barring a miraculous kick return with 12 seconds left, it wasn't too harsh because Syracuse absolutely should have lost the football game. So. Apologies that nice things weren't said for a barely beating an FCS team, but they weren't deserved. No, and to be honest, when I when I heard that, um, I I was kind of like, well, I mean, it, is that really what their concern should be right now? What uh, what the the blogging world and the fan world thinks of them? Shouldn't they be more worried about um, you know winning games like this by twenty points? So. Uh, I'm not too concerned about it. I, I just, uh, yeah, I mean, same thing. I'm obviously rooting for these guys. want them to win. I want them to to kick ass from here on out. I want to see great things out of all of them. But uh, it's just hard to watch a game like that and ha- have that instill enthusiasm as a fan. Well, it brings to life something. Considering we're the ones who are saying we're going to win eight games and everything and – Everyone else thinks we're crazy, maybe because they don't know enough about the team and maybe because we are crazy, but, like, 
we're we're not the problem. <laughs> the the Syracuse <laughs> bloggers are not the issue with what happened. No. So, dead it focus on the field people, please. Well, I think we have the first like generation of. I mean, I think like the last couple of years, the first generation of kids who come onto campus already knowing exactly what Noon's magician is and exactly who the blogosphere is covering the team, which has kind of changed, I guess, the tone. Of, like, I mean, we know for a fact that there's players that read the blog. Like, and and it, it, I guess for, for any blog, and not just ours, I think it becomes a tough sort of... I mean, you obviously root for these players. You care about these players. You're not, you're not a traditional journalist or beat writer. And because you're not, there's almost an expectation from fans and players alike maybe even the athletic department, that you're going to be a little bit easier w- w- when things go wrong. And, and I think that that's, that's something odd and it's something that, that I'm sure that a lot of blogs deal with, you know, as they continue to grow. Yeah, and, and I see that a lot, you know, across the even across the SB Nation network. I see blogs that are just rah-rah no matter what's going on. And then um, and I see blogs that are just... Uh, uh, God bless them, Bruins Nation, the UCLA blog for years. Just you just go over there and it's just a dumpster fire. Like every day, they want to fire everyone. And they just hate everything, and it just seems exhausting. And uh, you know, I I think we strike a pretty good balance here. You know, if the I was getting called out on Twitter the other day about my post game recap, and then I looked at the site and I looked every other post on the within like the last three days was fairly positive about the program you know it it's the same old thing you know you can focus on the one negative thing or you can focus on uh uh the fact that it's uh it's one out of 20 things that are supportive and positive and you know our job isn't to be cheerleaders our job is to just be fans and we just happen those of us who write for the site just happen to have a slightly louder voice than other fans, and and that's really all it is. Now, Dan, you get to write about, you know, other teams, too, and, John, I know you get to write about real estate. So, I guess, (laughs) do you guys feel like other things, like, I mean, I'm John, are there real estate fans or the people that, that get mad if you if you happen to take a less than ideal um, angle on a neighborhood? Oh my God! I I you you I don't know I don't know if you're expecting me to say no. Of course not. But oh my God, they're they're crazier because you're you're getting into like NIMBY stuff and my neighborhood's better than your neighborhood and uh, you know this neighborhood was so much better 20 years ago before all those people moved in you're getting into all that stuff and it then it becomes like that crazy political online comments and you know you're dealing with that kind of stuff so it, it's it's even crazier and um, you know as much as we may there may be some people every once in a while in the comments on the on noons that that get a little feisty and maybe a little inappropriate we we've we still have a very uh very fair and, and very positive uh community i think compared to what what else i'm seeing out there so i can't complain about syracuse fans you know that there are the ones that are out there that are going to be nutty and negative but for the most part i think we do pretty well yeah we're, we're not that bad <laughs> I, I can tell you <laughs> firsthand we're not even registering on the on the seismograph of fan insanity. 
Um, I don't even know where to begin, uh, and I probably shouldn't begin, not to uh, <laughs> make any more uh, fan bases cough, cough, FSU Twitter, cough, uh, mad at me. So you can't say anything um, about a team that's negative without someone saying that they're going to stop reading you forever and that your opinion doesn't matter and you don't know what you're talking about. Even if what you're saying is, A, like completely reported, substantiated news, or you're just sharing what someone else said. Uh, you can't win. So it's, it's, uh, it's Syracuse fans are pretty, uh, pretty reasonable by comparison. Uh, especially when it comes to the big powerhouse programs and the SEC especially. Uh, it's just nuts <laughs> what the, some of the things that people take offense to. Even, like, you could have, if Alabama went 0-12, their fans would freak out and call for everyone's job. But if you said that someone should get fired, you are a hater and you don't know what you're talking <laughs> about and you're underrating Alabama football, even though they went 0-12. So, it's a uh, it's a different world. Syracuse, we're, we've we're fairly. I think this extended period of the G Rob era slash the low the the lawn build back has made us probably a little more uh, understanding of things. Uh, maybe it's for the best for our, for you know how we view the world. Um, but again, if we go eleven and one one year and fans want to stream about stuff after that, I'm cool with that too. I think it's one of those things, you know, um, the, I can talk about my friends and my family that way, but you can't s- sort of thing. And I think in, in particular, uh, when you have a tight-knit fan base, and, and I do feel like, you know, with, with just about every, um, you know, BCS conference school, say maybe Rutgers, um, like, like, you're going to have, like, a pretty tight-knit fan base um, that, that that's far and wide, always looking for the first person to... Uh, to say something negative, and I mean, we're, we're all guilty of it on the SU side of things, and I know I am. The second I see something, <laughs> the second I see something, uh, something negative, I'm usually putting out a tweet with, you know, hashtag disloyalty or, or hashtag not a true fan, or, or, or I mean, obviously a nod to our community, but I think seriously fans in particular, it's just it's ingrained in our DNA to to find <laughs> to, to find the uh, the critics and then publicly shun the non-believer um, in front of everyone. It is fun to do that, though. So I can't totally... I mean, it's not, not like not like we all haven't done it. Uh, as you said, John, I mean, you post things. I remember the in 2010 or 2009, right before the really awesome West Johnson basketball team, someone at, at Bleacher Report wrote... Uh, a very uh, in-depth look at New York State college basketball in which he placed Syracuse behind Siena in terms of uh, all the the programs in the state uh, and Syracuse team in number two before they went on to be a, the number one team in the country. And his reasoning was like, I don't take any point guard whose name is stooped seriously and we don't know anything about Wes Johnson even though he was like second behind Kevin Durant in Big 12 Rookie of the Year. And uh, he got lambasted, and that article I think still gets posted every so often when people want to make fun of something. So there's something about it. Um, that's why I try not to make overly ridiculous claims, but 
you know, sometimes everyone's mad about stuff. It's a good way to think about it. Someone will always get mad, so don't worry about it. Yep. You could you could call you could watch a, t- a play of a touchdown and call it a touchdown, and someone will be like, "No, that wasn't a touchdown." <laughs> Not in the SEC, it wasn't. Y'all didn't you didn't start in Bama? Wasn't a touchdown. <laughs> <laughs> Who have you played, Dan? Who have you played? <laughs> Does not apply to West Virginia, who scored many touchdowns in Alabama. <laughs> I'd like to thank Alabama for actually getting me to root for West Virginia for an afternoon because I honestly didn't think that was possible. That was weird. I did the same thing. I was like, I was all about Clint Trickett. He was he was lighting them up, and the receivers just decided to make the most ridiculous set of catches I've ever seen in a losing effort. They caught everything. Yeah, I guess. I guess moving on before we kind of you know, summarize things in the past and going forward. Um, for people who went to who go to Seattle for any reason, the place that we went to brunch, John, was delicious. Have to say, repeat if I'm ever back in town. The shout out to Edda's, a Tom Douglas restaurant. And it's uh, right off Pike Place Market, which sounds like it would be kind of uh, touristy, but uh, it's just far enough away that it's not. I had the uh, had the shrimp and grits, and it was it was one of my favorite meals of the entire vacation. So very excited about that one. You had shrimp and grits in Washington, and I did not have shrimp and grits in South Carolina. I think we did this wrong. <laughs> I, I, I went genuine article up there. I had some poutine when I was in Vancouver. Uh, I, I made sure that I had all the local fare. So while you were in Seattle, I don't know if you answered this already, but what was the best beer that you had? Uh, when I was in Seattle, uh might have been might have been Dayglow IPA from Elysian. Um, mm. It wasn't at the brewery, which was a bummer, so I happened to... Uh, I wouldn't be able to grab a uh, a bottle of it at like a local shop, which was nice. Um, what else did I have? I had their Immortal IPA when I was over at the Mariners game, and that was also pretty good. Solid choice. I agree. How was uh? How was uh? How was Noon's Brew aging at the moment? It's it's doing well. I mean, it's uh, like I said, it's uh, the the what do you call it? Um, the it it's a little flat. Uh, the I can't think of the word right now. Undercarbonated. Yeah, there you go. Didn't really carbonate uh, all that much, and from apparently from what I found out, I didn't have the temperature right while it was um, while it was uh, fermenting. So. Um, I'll work on that, but taste-wise, it's pretty good. Uh, I've been drinking it now the whole time. I'm not dead yet. And, um, it, yeah, I, I haven't uh, felt the need to go buy a different beer just to uh, switch it up. I'm going to drink the, the whole payload, and uh, that should last me a couple more weeks. And then, I don't know, i got to figure out what's going to be the next, what will be Noon's Brew 2.0. You know what I would recommend 
is, well, obviously, if it's good, keep drinking. But I would maybe recommend putting aside, like, depending on how many you have, like, two bottles to age three months, two bottles to age six, and two to age, like, nine to a year. That's a good idea. Yeah, because I know, because when my friend and I brew sometimes, we'll end up with, um, we'll end up with one that doesn't really taste great at the onset, um, and then he's actually like, sat on the, the mini kegs of of them, and then over time we've like revisited, and I know I just a couple weekends ago was hanging out with him, we cracked open one of the ones that he had put, that we'd put together probably about a year ago, and tasted phenomenally better than, than what we'd originally pulled out. That's interesting. I'll, uh, I'll actually go ahead and set those aside right now. Yeah, just as a, you never know. New, you could have a uh, barrel-aged noon brew at some point. Just start putting wax on them, selling them for $45. <laughs> for $44, just to make it. Yeah, so it's like right now I've got plaid jacket Bayheim, and I'm trying to get to uh, Carrier Dome uh, inseam Bayheim. So I've got uh, I'll work my way up there, and then eventually I'll get to jacket off Bayheim, which sounds dirty as I say that, but um, Ooh. yeah. Uh, let's. I don't think I can unsee that now. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Now it's going to get updated to a rated R podcast and no one knows. Look at that unfortunate explicit tag. <laughs> All right, so I guess Dan and I kind of bounced around some of the things that we wanted to see going forward, and, and Dan prepped me for to the horrors I'm going to witness tonight when I watch the game uh, on ESPN3. Um, Sean, what is your kind of... Uh, what was your takeaway? What do you what do you need to see from this team through the bye week, um, you know, and, and going into the CMU game? Like, what needs to happen in order for for your confidence to be at least like semi restored? Uh, I don't know if that's one thing. I mean, um, you know, I, I think we have to see the the defense prove that it can handle an, an FBS quality offense, and I think. Our offense needs to prove it can be more than um, just hoping that our running backs break free, and uh, and so I don't know. You know, there's a lot of things in there for that. So I've kind of given up on expecting there to be any kind of like deep passing game. I, I accept that it's going to be all short passes and screens from here on out. Uh, but I would just like to see, you know, uh, I'd just like to see that offense in action. I'd like to see what it looks like when it's actually humming along and moving down the field. Uh, you know, just how many players get involved and, and how can we make that work rather than um, what it seemed like at times, which was just like, let's just hope he breaks free. So uh, I, I guess to answer that question, a lot. <laughs> and Dan, from you, is there is there anything else that, that we haven't already squeezed out of this stance? Um, I don't think we touched on how bad the offensive line was, which was kind of unnerving, uh, considering we were hoping that would be a strength again, um, especially on the right side. The one play that stuck out to me, uh, and I'm sure there were more bad plays, but uh, on one of the many, many, it honestly mean more, 
goal line or, or near goal line runs, Ivan Foy just got driven directly into him um, by a Villanova lineman who I'm sure was not bigger than like 230 pounds. And that was kind of indicative of how the whole, like, we just could not run block for our lives. Um, Wilson actually didn't face too much pressure. I think the pass blocking was mostly okay. But maybe, hopefully, Nick Robinson and Amari Palmer can get back, and that fixes things because the O-line should have just dominated this game. And, you know, for a little while it looked like they were going to when, when Dolly had that huge hole, uh, which he stored on. But for the most of the game, the offensive line just did not play up to, up to snuff at all. And, again, hoping that was a strength of the team. Um, doesn't make me feel great that Villanova's FCS-sized line was able to legitimately push the Syracuse line to the point where Amin Moore couldn't store on, what, like eight carries near the goal line when he absolutely should have been able to. So that was that was not good. I think the flashbacks to the Iowa games were just, were too stark, they were too real. Um, and then when you add on to the fact that this team was not a number 15 ranked Iowa like they were back in 2006, um, I think the offensive line for me, and again, this is kind of someone who really needs to to sit down with, with each and every play and really kind of dive in. Uh, the offensive line to me did seem like a, a bit of a disaster area, and I'm just kind of uh, I'm kind of hoping that this is a flash in the pan. I know we started so slow in recent seasons that I'm just hoping that this is another one of those situations and and that we can kind of get things going. Yeah, based on that, uh, I guess we are actually and definitively done talking about the Syracuse team and the things they did not do. Um, oh, I don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> I don't think anybody does. I know. Uh, <laughs> I know both both of our wives were tired of hearing about it after the first minute or so on uh, on Sunday. So I, I can imagine listeners are probably probably nearing that as well. Yeah, I don't know. This I, I've never been more glad to not have football this weekend. Honestly, like I'm, <laughs> I need a, a total. Maybe two weeks. This bye week is good for everyone. Cause it almost, I said this somewhere, like it almost feels like we're getting a second season opener. I think that's a good way to think about it, and we'll just, we'll figure out, uh, we can factor in the win when we need to, but in the meantime, we'll just forget that it exists. Yep, I, I'm okay with just completely burying this one in the, the annals of bad Syracuse teams, even a win, which... I used to not take for granted, but maybe we're we're at that point now. Hopefully. All right. Well, on that note, I think we stand on a positive here. Um, so yeah, thanks for coming out, guys. It's a delightful hour plus. You know, uh, in case anyone wants to wallow more, they'll get we'll get one more hour before we kind of kill this game off for good and bury it. And, and I think this helped. I'll just put some closure on it. I, I know, like I said, I still have to open up the wound one more time. But uh, this is going to put us on the road to better things. Amen.
Sounds good to me. So, everybody, uh, this has been Troy Noon's Absolute Podcast. Um, I'm John, your host, but with me today were Dan Lyons and the esteemed Sean Keeley. Uh, you can comment all you wish in the uh, comment section here on the site. Uh, be sure to rate and follow slash subscribe to the blog at Blog Talk Radio, sorry, podcast at Blog Talk Radio slash iTunes, and rate and review us because that actually does help. There's nice things for us, and I'm sure you like us to have nice things because Syracuse doesn't always. Um, so anyway, this has been us. You've been you. Have a good night. I'm Jay Farner, CEO of Quicken Loans, America's premier home purchase lender. We've created a new way to protect you from unpredictable interest rates. Our exclusive Rate Shield approval. First, we lock your interest rate for up to 90 days. Then, if rates go up, your rate stays locked. But if rates go down, your rate drops. Either way, you win. Call us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com. Rate Shield approval only valid on certain 30-year fixed rate loans. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLS number 3030. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.